G'day, folks, and welcome. I'm Chris Faber. And I'm TJ Stedman. And you're listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast coming to you from sunny Western Australia. G'day, folks, and welcome back to another episode of the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, the show that tackles your questions about the biblical giants. Now, Tim, I'm almost afraid to ask if there's anything unusual about the Bible verse that we're going to look at today, because last time I thought it was going to be uh, pretty straightforward, and then the whole thing got turned on its head twice uh, before we ever got to the end of it. Yeah, that was fun. We started with a verse that looked like it had just been thrown in there unnecessarily, and we began to unpack how the man looked like he was finally getting his attitude right and doing what he was supposed to be doing, only to realise that he really seemed to be more interested in preserving his own legacy rather than honouring anybody else. Yes, uh, and that was uh, Genesis 3, verse 20, where the man names his wife Eve, the mother of all the living. Um, but now we're moving on into verse 21, and I definitely learned my lesson from last time, so I'm not going to suggest that this one is as straightforward as it seems. I'm sure this is going to have all kinds of convoluted twists and turns before we uh, finally unpack this whole verse. Yeah, I, I guess I can't blame you for thinking that. Why don't we read it, and then we'll get down to business. This is Genesis 3, verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Well, there it is, Chris. A plain and simple Bible verse for our study today. I mean, what could possibly be drawn out of such a simple verse that would make it so intimidating to so many commentators? I know, right? I mean, how obvious is it that this is clearly about the atonement? The what? The atonement where the clothing provided by God for shadows Christ's covering of our sins. I've heard this preached a hundred times. It's so obvious. I don't think so. What do you mean? Everybody knows that. Do they? I'm I'm not convinced. Yes, this whole thing. It's all about the animal sacrifice and all that. It starts with these animals that God killed to make the clothes. The sin offering. It's atonement. Are you sure? I feel like you're just throwing words around here. How do these concepts work together? Well, you know, God was angry because of what Adam and Eve did. So he killed animals instead of killing the humans. And he made the clothes to cover their sins. And that's how his wrath was appeased. But Adam and Eve still died. So the idea of the animals dying in their place is, well, not very well thought out. Even if we, even if we thought that this was talking about death in functional terms, where we have in mind the symbolic death of the the inner man who is unable to represent God because of sin. Now, how does the death of animals fix that? It just doesn't. Uh, and what about the idea of some kind of covering for sin? I mean, clothes cover your, your body, not your sin. How does clothing solve the problem of sin? Didn't God make people naked in the first place? Uh, again, it, it doesn't work. There's just so many holes in this understanding of the text. Well, if it didn't make sense, that it wouldn't be getting preached every Sunday all over the place by evangelical pastors. It's all in the commentaries, Tim. Uh, yes, uh, I've seen the commentaries. Well, uh, that, that might be true, but if the purpose of the garments of skin was connected in some way to the appeasement of God's wrath on the humans, then why is there still this need to continue with exile from the garden and the eventual death of the humans? I mean, if the death of animals to create these garments solves that problem, then why do we still have consequences after that act is completed? Finally, a question I can answer. It's because killing the animals wasn't good enough. That's why we need Jesus. He was the perfect sacrifice. So God just thought he'd try this and see if it worked? I mean, if it didn't work and God knows everything and knows that it wouldn't work, why is he doing it? 
But I thought, God loves doing stuff that doesn't work. Look at the law, for example. God gave Israel the Torah, and that wasn't good enough to save them either. Paul even said so. Really? Um, (laughs) Oh, man, this is what I hate about Protestant theology. And I don't get the sacrifice thing. There's nothing in the text here about eating the animals. A sacrifice is supposed to be a shared meal. Nobody's eating. The text doesn't actually say anything about killing or sacrifice or atonement or forgiveness or fellowship or wrath or appeasement or punishment or any of these things. Hmm. Yes, uh, never thought about that. So now that you mention it, it really should have been more obvious. So what's the deal with the animal skins then? Well, the garments are made of skins because that's what everyone's garments are made of. The, the reason that the text specifies garments of skins is a contrast over against the garments of fig leaves, I suppose. It's not anything to do with the death of animals. I mean, we understand that you get skins by killing animals, but that's not what's in view in the text. We have a tendency to fixate on the killing because we think that there's some kind of a substitutionary death happening here. And that's not the case because the substitutionary death, if that actually was a thing, doesn't work. And we have no indication at all that it was the intent. It's the same with sacrifice. Sacrifice isn't about killing, it's about eating. Just because you have to kill an animal before you eat it, that doesn't mean that the whole point is about killing it. You, know, you sacrifice a loaf of bread, but you don't kill it first. So maybe you could help me understand, how does anyone arrive at the point where they see God giving clothes to the humans as somehow related to a prefiguring of Christ's atonement for our sin? Well, it's pretty simple, really. The Bible says that God made coverings for them. Atonement means covering. So if Jesus' death atones for our sin, then the killing of animals as a sacrificial sin offering to make coverings for Adam and Eve does the same thing. That's how they were saved from the wrath of God, right? Uh, no. What? What do you mean no? What are you talking about? All right, let, let me try and explain what just happened. There's, there's a word in Genesis 3 that means covering. It's katnot. There's a word in Genesis 6 that means covering. It's kafar. Those are two different words. Both of them get translated as covering in English. The one we find in Genesis 6 also appears throughout the Torah in the context of atonement. But Genesis 3 has nothing to do with atonement. And as I just said, it's a totally different word. It's just covering. It's literally clothes. In fact, if we took the Hebrew literally, God made things that hang off the shoulders of the man and the woman, using animal skins to cover them. That's it. But this gets complicated unnecessarily by people who want to conflate the terminology because if you take the word for covering in Genesis 6 and then you read Genesis 8, there's a different word for covering and that term is mixech, which is like a sheet or curtain or a roof made of skins. This is the word used for the covering on the tabernacle. So if you forget that the covering in Genesis 6 is referring to the application of tar or pitch to the outside of the ark, you might conclude that the same covering is referred to in Genesis 8, which is actually more like a kind of tarpaulin used to keep the rain out from the opening that Noah made in the sides of the ark. And that would lead you to conclude that all of these words are references to some kind of coverings made of skins. And since one of those words gets used in the context of atonement, ironically the only word that actually doesn't refer to anything made of skins, then that must mean that the garments made for Adam and Eve had something to do with atonement for sin. The animal skins have no power to pay some kind of price for sin or take the place of the man and the woman as sinners getting killed for what they did wrong. The animals were not sacrificed. Sacrifices get eaten, and there's no mention whatsoever of meat or of eating 
in fact, there's not even a mention of animals. We just assume that it's animal skins because that's what normal people made their clothes out of back then. I'd be a bit worried if they made them out of people skins. I'm sure if people were walking around wearing polyester at the time, God could have made them clothes out of that. But this is the ancient world, and God's going to give them clothes like everybody else has. It's okay to be naked in the garden in the presence of God, but if you're going to be outside with everybody else, then you need to be dressed. It's pretty simple, really. This wasn't some kind of object lesson to show Adam and Eve what death is. They didn't need to be taught what happens when you sin by watching God butcher an animal. We've talked before about how living and dying is part of the natural world that God created and that the correct reading of Romans 5 shows that the Apostle Paul is not trying to teach that nothing or nobody ever physically died prior to the fall of man. Again, I have to say, what's the purpose of a tree of life if not to prevent the death that would naturally have occurred? They knew what death was. They didn't need God to describe it to them by killing an animal in front of them. And that would just be a bit weird, wouldn't it? <laughs> so you're telling me that this Bible verse is just meant to be a plain, straightforward statement. God provided clothes for them and that's it. There's no hidden meaning. You're not about to tell me that the Hebrew words actually mean something totally different to what the translation says, are you? It's not some kind of statement designed to convey something completely foreign to our lovely little ears? Well, I suppose if you wanted to get something kind of symbolic out of this, then you could say that God is teaching them a lesson by dressing them according to the flesh and reminding them that they now look more like the animals. They are reminded that it was their animalistic tendency to serve themselves. They got them in this position. Had they chosen to represent God and not to serve themselves, they would not be in a situation of exile. They wouldn't need the clothes. Remember that there's nothing inherently wrong or sinful about being naked. God isn't making them wear clothes because their sin was being naked. They're wearing clothes because they're about to go outside the garden. And out there, the people without knowledge of God are not going to necessarily have the same respect for the human body as the image and likeness of God that God's people should. The provision of the clothing is definitely an act of mercy and grace extended from God to the humans, and it does speak of his love for us. I just think that we can read it as it is without the necessity of trying to insert theology where it doesn't belong. We don't need that, and the text doesn't require it. And if this was supposed to be some kind of reference to Jesus, then why doesn't Jesus ever talk about this? We need to resist the urge to find our saviour under every rock and behind every tree. Sure, but what about the idea that these were some kind of uh, magical garments that God gave them? I heard there's uh, quite a bit of tradition around that concept. Yeah, I, I've heard that too, based on rabbinic mysticism that gets a bit close to the occult for my liking. Uh, we, we haven't got the time to get into that here unless someone wants to send in a question about it. We'll take your questions. Just go to the website, joinanswers.com, and submit them using the form on the front page. So what's the significance then of God providing the clothes i mean if it's such an ordinary normal thing why is it even in the text isn't it kind of assumed that people wear clothes and that's just normal so why is it even relevant in this story ah well now we're talking about something interesting and i think that calls for a deeper dive beyond the pages of my book answers to giant questions so that we can get into the cultural background that made this necessary in the first place
So you're saying that there's actually some stuff that's really important here in this verse? Yeah, there's actually a lot going on behind the setting of this narrative when we consider that the final form of this text, as we've received it, touches on ancient Mesopotamian stories that have significant ramifications for our theology. But I thought you were just saying that this wasn't a place to be putting theology into the text. Hmm? Well, I'm talking about the theology that was written into it, not the theology that was read into it later. This isn't about finding some way to squeeze Jesus into the text. It's about uncovering the theology that the author actually intended at the time he was writing or perhaps editing this narrative in the 6th century BC. All right, so how do we know what that is? Well, over the years, archaeologists have discovered lots and lots of ancient manuscripts that tell stories that we might call mythology about the gods of Mesopotamia and their interactions with mankind. As it turns out, some of these well-known stories feature special clothes. So there's this guy, and his name is Adapa, and he is the first man in Mesopotamian mythology. Sometimes he is the seventh man in other versions of the story. His name sounds a bit like Adam, who's the first man in Jewish mythology. Yeah, that's right, I said mythology. Um, I'm using the academic definition of the term, which does not imply that it's some kind of made-up story. So uh, if we could get over that, that'd be great. This particular story is what we call an ascent myth where a mortal man gets glorified in the presence of the divine before returning to the land. In the story called Adapa and the South Wind, he is the priest of the god Ea, which makes him one of the Anunnaki, a member of the divine council, just like how in the Garden of Eden, Adam was in the divine council. He goes fishing because he wants to give an offering of fish to Ea. While he's fishing, the south wind blows up a big storm and tips his boat over. Adapa gets mad and fights the south wind, who's like a god in this story, a god that has wings. And Adapa breaks his wing. Oh, sounds like he's in trouble. Yeah. Anu summons Adapa to come and see him. And he finds out about how Adapa broke the south wind's wing. Anu is like the, the most high god. The god Ea comes to Adapa and he gives advice to him about what to do when he ascends to come before Anu in the heavens. And he says basically that he's going to meet a couple of gods at the gate of heaven and he's going to have to sweet talk them to let him in. And once he gets in there, he's going to have to make sure that he doesn't eat or drink any food or drink that gets offered to him because it will kill him. But if Anu offers him clothes to wear and oil for anointing himself, he should definitely take those. So Adapa takes this advice and when he goes to see Anu, he refuses food and drink, but he accepts the offer of special clothes to wear and oil for anointing himself. You should be seeing some interesting similarities and differences here between this story and Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. After having refused the food and drink, Adapa finds out that it was the food and drink he was offered that would have given him immortality, not death. But he had turned them down, and the clothing and oil that he accepted gave him wisdom but did not prolong his life. So he returned to the land as a wise sage, but he had lost the chance to live forever. The clothing gave him a kind of glorification on account of his wisdom, but it would not last for long because he was only mortal, and he would eventually die. There are lots of different versions of this story, and in some of them there's a flood tradition. Others have Adapa as the king who would take the place of the biblical Enoch as seventh from Adam. Whatever version you read, there are some similarities to the Garden of Eden story. The man is a priest to a god and serves in sacred space. He's brought into the presence of the Most High God. 
This meeting takes place high up in a sacred place. There's some kind of food offered which provides those who eat it with immortality. The man falls foul of the God by doing something which disrupts the intended order of things. The man receives wisdom as a result of his experience in the sacred place. The man is cheated out of his opportunity to have everlasting life by a divine being who deceives him. The man must stand before the God where he is held to account for his actions. There is clothing provided to the man which he accepts. The sacred place is guarded by divine beings. And the man must leave the sacred place at the end of the story. So when you see it like that, it really looks like the author of the Garden of Eden story must have been ripping off this story of Adava, which was written much earlier. But as I've said before, using a common story with familiar motifs does not necessitate the copying or stealing of an original idea. Like if I say three guys walk into a bar, you know I'm about to tell a joke. You're already familiar with the premise. This is something that you know well, and now you're prepared for the point of the joke because as I go on and tell it, You'll pick up on the familiar pattern and you'll notice the things that stand out, which is what makes the joke work. And I don't have to waste my time trying to explain the scenario because you already know what it is. You understand what's important and what isn't, and you're just waiting for the funny part. This is how people communicate. They use familiar scenarios so that they serve as a means to convey the point. So rather than seeing the parallels between the stories and talking about it in terms of which one is derivative of the other, we should just be trying to work out how one story differs from the other. And that's going to help us get the point of the variation in the book of Genesis. So what is the difference between these two stories then? Well, Adapa serves a lesser God who is not the most high. It's the God that Adapa serves who deceives him and cheats him out of his chance at immortality. The most high God honors Adapa for the bad thing he has done. The garments and anointing oil were gifts of honour rather than a reminder of the man's transgression. Eating the food would have brought life rather than death. Adapa returns to the land outside the sacred space as a king with good things that he can impart to his fellow man, unlike Adam, who as a king takes from his fellow man in order to survive. We talked about that last time. So the major difference between these stories is that in the Adapa myth, the Most High God is not necessarily good and he honours the man for using violence. The God that the man serves is the one who betrays him and cheats him out of everlasting life, and he receives a kind of glorification as a result of what he's done. According to Genesis, the Most High God is good, and it's a lesser divine being who uses deception to cheat the man out of his destiny. The wisdom that the man receives is not good for him, and the clothing that he receives serves as a humbling reminder of his error. Instead of being glorified as a result of his transgression, the man is humbled and ashamed because he could have had glory and remained in the presence of the Most High God if he had not committed the transgression. There's obviously a lot more that could be said about these two ancient stories in comparison, but I'm not about to write a dissertation here. The main point that I think we'll find coming from the author of Genesis is that the wisdom that mankind received from the gods was not a good thing and that man was essentially dishonoured as a result. And that flies in the face of the Mesopotamian tradition, where the old wisdom from before the flood that was imparted by the gods is the most important thing. And obtaining that wisdom and its glory by violent means was looked upon favourably, because it was considered to be the cornerstone of civilization itself. So I think that says a lot about the inclusion of this verse in Genesis 3, 
where God gives clothing to the man and his wife that reflects the animalistic nature of the transgression that necessitated their exile from sacred space, rather than some kind of glorious garments and anointing oil indicative of some kind of honour and prestige. The man and his wife are humbled while still being cared for and loved by the God they serve. And that's a good thing because it means that the redemption and restoration of all things that we all long for must come from something external to mankind. It has to come from something outside of civilization and kingship and religion. It has to come from something greater than human effort and selfish ambition. And we haven't seen yet what that's going to look like. But as I keep saying on this podcast, it's coming. And that's really the whole point of the Hebrew Bible, to build up our expectation of Messiah and to be found going about his business when he comes so that we can inherit the eternal life and glory that we were always supposed to experience. Remember that unlike the Babylonian paradigm where humans cannot hope to be anything more than slaves to the gods, our creator made us in his image and likeness destined for divine glory. We don't have to fight for that. We don't have to earn it. And since we didn't earn that status, we can't lose it either. All that God is looking for is our allegiance and faithfulness. I've written a lot more about this in my book, Answers to Giant Questions. And in the book, I focused more on the parallels between the Adapa myth and the story of Enoch, which we're going to get into in the coming seasons. Also, I talk in the book about how the idea of putting on certain attributes of the divine nature, like putting on a garment, is prominent in New Testament theology. We haven't got the time to go into that here, but as I say, it's in the book. And what a book it is. Uh, well, that's about all we've got time for, so we're going to wrap it up there. But we'll see you next time on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. All right. See you then. It's time to wrap up today's episode. But if you want more, don't forget to get yourself a copy of Answers to Giant Questions. We're asking readers to please leave a review of the book on Amazon or Goodreads to help it become more visible in search results. Even if you just give it stars, that'll help. But a full review is certainly really appreciated. Please also leave a review of this podcast wherever you found us so that new listeners can find us here on the show. In the future, we want to be talking about your stories as well, not just our own. So if you have had a particular paranormal or spiritual experience, we want to hear from you. And we're also looking for your testimonies about how you have found the content and answers to giant questions to be helpful and or useful. Of course, this podcast comes out every week, but you want to make sure you never miss an episode. So if you haven't already subscribed, do that now and you'll get notified when each new episode drops. That's all we have time for today. We'll catch you next time on the Answers to Giant Questions podcast. Thank you for listening to the Answers to Giant Questions podcast, a production of the Raven Creek Social Club. If you like what you heard today, please take a moment to rate or review the show. Music supplied under copyright by Grave Forsaken, graveforsaken.com. You can get the book, Answers to Giant Questions by DJ Stephen on Amazon, paperback, and Google Check out the other podcasts at ravencreekscc.com, giantanswers.com. Read the blog and have us on socials, but you can subscribe to the Rant Club Show. Send us more giant questions and stay tuned to this podcast to get answered. We'll see you next time. Until then, stay safe. We're bowling tomorrow. Colleagues? Oh, yeah. What kind of bowling? Champion? Yeah. Oh, yeah. What's the other kind? Lawn? Yeah, lawn bowls, I suppose. Uh, bowling and cricket. <laughs> well, that wouldn't be much fun. It's only bowling and no batting. Also, you know, drum bowlers. Um, I um, could yes, be in a uh, soup kitchen just wa- washing bowls. Well, that's washing. Could be bowling.
sure this is going to have all kinds of uh, convoluted twists and turns before we finally pack this uh, entire verse. Do you say pack or unpack? <laughs> it is unpacked enough, but let's, let's say that again. As you can tell, I'm now in uh, week four of dealing with bronchitis. So God just thought he would try and see this and that. So God just thought he'd try and... Yeah. <laughs> 3.143, wow, it's the pie episode. It's not about pie. Oh, yes, you should say that. I think I just did. Thank you for all your questions. No, actually, I don't even, I won't even say that because we haven't done any questions, have we? <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right, let's do that again. So, yeah, I saw a few photos of you today from the glory days when you had hair and stuff. <sighs> yeah, I know. Way back when. <sighs> yeah, we're all so skinny and young. Oh, I know. Unreal. You're a bit of a stud there. <laughs> don't know about that. Why was I single for so long? Yeah, yeah. Oh, indeed. I don't know. Women, they don't know what they want. <laughs> Once they yeah. get it, they change their mind. Yeah, you look quite different, eh? Oh, very. You don't look different. I mean, you look different than what I remember you. If your face looks like... Someone else. You look like you're 11 there. Yeah, um... I had a very uh, youthful appearance. I went to a toy and comic fair last Saturday. I posted a bunch. Oh, yeah, yeah. I saw some of the pictures. That looked pretty good. Yeah, it's only $2 entry. Kids under 12 are free. So I can just have a shave, then I'll be right. Exactly. 